inspired by the Holy Spirit, instruct us to pray for the church? Or in other words, what was the most urgent need of the church? How did the church go from a small group of disciples in the upper room to becoming a global, worldwide body? The prayer that we will look at in Ephesians 1, like other New Testament prayers, provides an example for us to follow. And this prayer teaches us that we need to pray for one another, that the Spirit of God will reveal the riches of God's grace that we have through Jesus Christ. Now this summary statement is intentionally Trinitarian. It reflects Ephesians 1, and the whole letter of Ephesians for that matter. The book of Ephesians emphasizes the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the planning, the executing, the revealing, and the securing of our salvation. So in this prayer that we will unpack in just a moment, we will see that the primary request is that we would know God. Now, if you were here last week, you may recall, that was basically the topic of Pastor Jim's message. Beholding is becoming. That as we behold the glory of God in His Word, we are transformed into His likeness. So in a way, you could say that today's passage, today's message, is a prayer that God would do exactly that in our body here. Now, if you did not listen to that message, Uh, I encourage you to listen, or if you did, it wouldn't hurt to listen to it again. Now, there was no planning on our part to connect our sermons in that way. I was asked to speak on prayer, and well, uh, after praying about it, uh, I settled on Ephesians 1. Now, last week, uh, as we did, it was emphasized that we are to know God We will see that aspect in our passage today. But here Paul is going to draw ourselves to three particular ways that we need to know God. The other difference or emphasis on this passage, which is certainly not contrary to last week, uh, but this message has an emphasis of corporate responsibility. That we all need to be doing this and we all need to be encouraging one another in this process. So please follow along with me as I read from Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 15. We'll go through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above our rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's ask for God's help as we look into his word. Most high God, we praise you for you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that you have given us your word, that your word is truth. We pray, Father, today that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see your glory. And Father, as a result, we would see your power and your greatness and your might, and that we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So first we're going to notice in the first two verses here, 15 and 16, the importance of prayer. And Paul begins with this transitional phrase, for this reason. And he's connecting what he's had said previously with what comes next here. That the reason, because as believers they have received the spiritual blessings he just conveyed, and now he prays that they will grasp these blessings. And Paul's example shows us that we need to pray for all believers. Or we could say, maybe a little more clearly, all believers need prayer. What qualifies these to be recipients of Paul's prayers? Is the fact that they are believers. The indication that they are believers is their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now the Bible is clear, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But genuine faith is always accompanied by transformation, and particularly by love for all the saints, not just those that we get along with. Now Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, but at the time of this writing, it had been several years since he had been there. No doubt there were those in the congregation whom Paul had taught, whom Paul knew well, who were mature believers. And there were also new converts that he did not know. So this prayer of Paul is appropriate no matter what our situation. Whether we're a new convert or a mature believer, whatever our circumstance, this is an appropriate prayer to pray. Paul did not only pray for all, he prayed always. Right, we could say he prayed continually. As it says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you or remembering you in my prayers. Now, of course, this does not mean that the only thing Paul ever did was pray, but it means he prayed regularly. He prayed intentionally. If Paul had a smartphone, I, he would have had an app that would have a list of prayers and he would be praying regularly using that as a guide. 
that's just a little speculation on my part. But. Right, verse 16 indicates, well, why is Paul so committed to prayer? Verse 16 indicates prayer is the way he gives thanks to God. You know, Paul could have taken some credit for the conversion of the Ephesians and for their growth. He had been an integral part of that church. However, Paul is giving thanks, acknowledging God is the one who has saved them. God is the one who is doing the work in their life. And now Paul, who was once a persecutor of the church and is now a servant of the church, never seemed to forget what God had done for him. And he understood if anything of value is going to happen, it's not going to be because he is smart or clever or a great speaker. It is because God has to do the work. Now, we all need prayer. Paul himself in this letter, in chapter 6, he asks for prayer as well. Are you praying for members of this body regularly? Now, there may be some that you do not know that well, and maybe that's an opportunity to try to get to know them. But even if you do not know them well, Paul here, he prays for some that he does not know personally. Maybe you don't know how to pray for them. This prayer will give us a pattern that we can follow. It's a pattern that's appropriate for all believers, as we, as we noted. Now, you do not have to, nor should you, limit your prayers to this body alone um, or those you know personally. One of the things that drew us to Super Road was the pastoral prayer. Uh, each Sunday, we pray for another church in the area, as we did this morning. And it's a reminder that other gospel churches in the area, they're not competitors, right? They're partners. So we can be praying for those in our, in our area as well. So Paul's example teaches us the importance of prayer. So now let's take a look at the content of the prayer. First, he prays to that our, or to increase our understanding of God's relationship with us. So Paul's prayer is for the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Uh, the Father of glory is unique. Uh, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. Um, as you may have noted, as we read the first few verses of Ephesians this morning, uh, there was an emphasis to the praise of His glory, uh, which went along with the song that we sang uh, early in the service. Uh, Ephesians has a particular emphasis on God's glory. And so I think Paul is highlighting here that the Father of glory, he's not only a glorious Father, but he is the one who displays his glory, who shows his glory, who reveals his glory to us. He's revealing his purpose. And glory has the idea of really heaviness, weight and importance or significance. And it's the manifestation of all of God's attributes. So to see His glory is to see His majesty and splendor and beauty and power and holiness in all these things. And to give God glory is to live in such a way that we acknowledge the weightiness of God, 
the importance of God. We praise Him and we point others to Him. Now, the ESV translators here have capitalized spirit where it says that we, give, we have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Um, and the translators do that to emphasize that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, other interpretations are possible, but I do believe the translators have it correctly here. Now, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, so we're not praying for God to give us the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as believers. But this really just conveys the idea we're praying for empowerment of the Spirit, just as we might ask to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we're asking for the Spirit to come to us originally. We receive the Spirit upon conversion. Now, it says we need a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom often conveys the idea of skill for living. What distinguishes a wise person from a foolish person is not really what they know. It's actually what they do with that knowledge. However, in this passage, the emphasis is not on wisdom that we need to know what to do. It's wisdom that we need to know someone, right? namely God. And we also need the spirit of revelation, which is this is just the ability to comprehend God's truth, for the spirit to illuminate us. So we need the spirit to give us wisdom and revelation to know God. What does it mean to know God? Well, we know it's more than just intellectual knowledge. James 2 says, even the demons believe and tremble. And Romans 1 says, even the ungodly recognize God. In verse 20 of Romans 1, it says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly clearly perceived since the creation of the world. Then in verse 21, it reads, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul is basically saying, by observing creation, we can draw the conclusion that there is a God. We can know He's a powerful God. He's divine. And we should respond in thankfulness and in worship. But these ungodly, to whom Paul refers, rather than worship God, they only had an intellectual knowledge. Instead of worshiping God, they worship the creation. So it's more than an intellectual knowledge, then what is it? Well, we can get some insight from Jesus' prayer in John 17. John 17, we'll start in verse 1, read the first three verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus tells us eternal life is to know God and to know him, to know the Son. This This indicates our salvation is not just acknowledging facts about God, it's about having a relationship with him. Right? It also tells us something about what eternal life is. Maybe we think eternal life just means that we live forever. 
It means more than that. It's not just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. We now, if we believe, if we know the Father, we have eternal life now. So in a sense, we could say eternal life is a fullness of life. It is to know God. Let's jump down to verse 24, still in John 17. Jesus continues praying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All right. This is truly amazing. Jesus says those who know God have the same love which God has for the Son. This is eternal love, he says, that goes before the foundation of the world. And those who know God have Christ in them. So knowing God is an intimate relationship with the Trinity. It is a oneness with the triune God. I don't have the words to adequately describe how incredible that is and what it means, which is exactly why Paul prays that we would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that we may grasp what we have in Christ and in the Father. So, we gain this knowledge, as we mentioned, through prayer and through the study of the Word, as we talked about in the sermon of the last couple of weeks. But this is not merely an intellectual exercise, not an intellectual pursuit, because the goal is not just that we receive information. The goal is transformation. Paul makes that clear if you go back to Ephesians 1, look at verse 18 having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Our hearts represent our whole being. It's our mind, our will, and our emotions. Knowing God changes how we think, what we believe, what we feel, what we love, what we do. It is our whole person that is being changed. Knowing God changes us completely. It's far more than an intellectual exercise. Now, I grew up going to Roman Catholic Church almost every week. I was even an altar boy at one point. And I believed in God. I believed in Jesus Christ. I believed in the resurrection. But I didn't know God. I never read the Bible. First time I ever received a Bible was when I went to basic training. I was at the military entrance processing station and the Gideons distribute Bibles uh, to everyone there. And I took one. I don't know if I ever planned to read it, but I figured I might as well take it. Um, now, basic training is intended to be difficult. You know, they're trying to break you. They're preparing you for war. Uh, I was 17 years old. I hadn't even been out of high school a week, 
And here I was in basic training, and I thought, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, it was probably the most stressful time of my life up to that point. Uh, I noticed some of the other guys were reading these pocket New Testaments and Psalms that the Gideons handed out. And I asked them about it, and they said, you know, it was comforting and helpful to them. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And uh, I remember, I, I probably opened up to Matthew because it was the New Testament. I don't really remember. I just remember, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, and I'm sure I didn't get very far into it where I just put it away and said, this isn't for me. Now, several months later, after a number of circumstances, uh, I had somebody who shared God's word with me. But this time, my experience was much different. I felt conviction. I believed what it said. The person who showed me said that I was under God's wrath, that I was a sinner, that I needed to trust Christ and repent of my sin. And God opened my eyes to show me that I needed Him. I needed to turn from my sin and trust Him. So it was different from when I was in basic training to this. Well, one thing is, I know there are people praying for me. But God opened my eyes that I could see what His Son had done for me. Now, Paul is addressing this prayer to believers. Now, I, as an unbeliever, had my eyes open, but we all regularly need God to open our eyes to see more clearly what He has for us. Now, I want to point something out which should be apparent, but I don't want to assume, that although prayer is essential, it's not all that we do. Um, if that were the case, uh, Ephesians would be a lot shorter, uh, for one thing. But Paul, of course, continues on. He gives prayer, followed by more doctrine, and we see later on in the book of Ephesians, application. So if we uh, look over to chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 16, I'm not going to read these word for word, I'm just going to highlight things here. But in verses 11 through 16, Jesus gives servants to the church, pastors and teachers and so forth, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is to build up the body until we all attain full knowledge of the Son, which is full maturity, that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So according to this passage, the pursuit of the knowledge of Him is the goal of the church. And in addition to praying for one another, how does that happen? In verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So we are equipped to speak the truth, to speak the word to one another. So what does that look like? Well, I expect it would happen in ordinary conversation with people. Someone's telling you what's going on in their life, what's happening in their family, what's happening in work. It's an opportunity to point them to God's Word, to encourage them. Sometimes, it might be to correct them. That's why Paul says we have to speak the truth in love. It's not always easy to hear the truth. But it also happens in more formal settings, right? We have things like community group, 
and life group. Uh, if you want to get involved in a doctrine study, you can go to srbc.life, click on the hamburger menu, go to study portal, and you can sign up there. Or talk to any of the elders or deacons, and I'm sure they would be happy to connect you into a Bible study. Now, we need to move on. Starting in verse 18, uh, we see that Paul gets more specific about what we need to know. We need to see God's kindness toward us in three ways. We're going to see, first of all, that He has called us to a hope. With the eyes of our hearts open, we need to pray now, he says, that we would know the hope to which He has called you. Now, biblical hope is more than just optimism or what we want to happen. It is a confident expectation that God will accomplish what He has promised. So what particular hope does Paul have in mind? Well, in chapter 2, he explains what it is like for us to have or what it was like for us to have no hope and then, then shows what it looks like that we have hope. So in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, being dead sounds pretty hopeless. We couldn't make ourselves alive. And I'll jump down to verse 12 of Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We had no hope. We were separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants and promises. That was our condition. But in verse 13, we have been brought near. Verse 16, we have been reconciled. Verse 18, we now have access to the Father through the Spirit. We are citizens and members of the household of God. We have a new citizenship, a new family. We have been brought near to God. That's what it looks like to have hope. How do we obtain this hope? Right, Paul notes we have been called to this hope. The obvious implication is that God is the one who called. He is the one who initiated it. We were dead. He is the one that made us alive. How does hope make a difference? Well, we know whatever pain, difficulty, or persecution we face, it's part of God's purpose. And it's also temporary. I'd like to share a brief prayer request uh, from the Voice of the Martyrs website. Um, you can go there and they share prayer requests from various Christians who are persecuted across the world and you can pray for them. This request comes from North Africa. Renee and Rebecca are half-sisters. Their father has four wives and practices animistic sorcery. Years ago, Renee's mother was unable to conceive, so she went to a Christian outreach hoping for a miracle. There she placed her faith in Christ and received prayer. Later, she became pregnant and gave birth to Renee. Renee's father was not pleased when his wife took Renee to church. Renee's half-sister, Rebecca, became a Christian while training at a hair salon with someone who sang worship songs. Rebecca's father told her that if she wanted to continue living in this house, she would have to perform 
demonic rituals. Both Rebecca and Renee refused to perform the rituals, so he declared he would kill them both and sacrifice them to local spirits. He then beat them severely, but they escaped. They told a frontline worker that having hope in eternal life through Jesus was worth all that they had suffered. Does hope make a difference? Secondly, we see that he has secured our inheritance. Now, this inheritance could be understood two ways. It could be the inheritance that God receives, or it could be the inheritance that God gives. Grammatically, both are acceptable, and both are true biblically, so there's no real controversy here. Um, If this refers to the inheritance that God receives, it's the idea that we are God's inheritance. And this theme is especially prevalent in the Old Testament. Um, There are some echoes of this in in the New as well. For instance, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a people for his own possession, for example. And this interpretation highlights our value to God, our belonging to God, and that is a great blessing. Um, The other way to understand this verse is that we need to know the riches of the inheritance that we will receive. And although commentators are divided and both are possible, I am more inclined to go with this interpretation. Um, I think this better fits the context. Uh, In verse 11 and 14 of chapter 1, Paul refers to our inheritance, which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, It seems natural that Paul would then pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us the riches of the inheritance that Paul just referred to. Uh, The other requests in this section are for God to give us hope, God to give us power. It seems more fitting that it would say then for God also to give us this inheritance. And this concept is much more prevalent in the New Testament, particularly in Colossians 1. There's a parallel prayer to this of Paul, and it's very clear that the inheritance they refer to is the inheritance we receive. Now, three aspects of this inheritance I want to point out. First of all, this inheritance is generous. Right? It's described here as riches, but it's not about money. It's more about experiencing the blessings Christ has secured for us and being in His presence. Our inheritance includes, for example, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, It talks about us inheriting the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, being heirs of the promises of God. Our inheritance includes all of these things. No wonder Paul calls this inheritance glorious and prays for the Spirit to reveal it to us. This inheritance is also secure, right? We didn't earn it. We don't have to do anything to keep it. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 It says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And this inheritance is in or among the saints. It's shared by all of us. Uh, Whenever a will is read on a TV show, uh, you know somebody is going to be unhappy, right? There's always, you know, the people there who are entitled and think, you know, they're they're ready. They can't wait to hear how much they're going to get. And then maybe, you know, there'll be like this lowly servant who uh, unexpectedly into the angst of the blood relatives, you know, they get the biggest portion. 
Uh, and that servant, you know, they're, they're shocked. But when it comes to our inheritance, uh, we don't have to worry about that, right? We all get it all. There's no limit. There's no lack. There's no fighting. None of us are going to be disappointed at the inheritance we receive. I think we'll be more like that servant. We know an inheritance is coming. But even still, we are going to be amazed at how incredible our inheritance is. So how does God accomplish this? We'll start in verse 19. Let's reread these, these four verses. Uh, these four verses all apply to this idea of understanding the greatness of His power. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, Paul has a deluge of words here, power and energy and might and strength. I think all this is just a compound, this amazing display of what God accomplished. When He raised Jesus from the dead, right, and He gave Him absolute authority over all things. Now, Paul actually is alluding here uh, first to Psalm 110, showing Jesus as the fulfillment of the one who would sit at the right hand of the Father. This idea of a position of authority being at the right hand of the Father. It says, far above all rule, authority, and power. The idea here is that not only earthly rulers, but over the heavenly rulers, Jesus Christ is far above them all. And if there was a multiverse, he'd be head over all of that as well, right? There is nothing that is not under his control. He is far above. In Psalm 110, it describes the enemies as his footstool, okay? They, they are nothing. There's no competition here. He is far above all of these. And he is ruling now, and in verse 21, also in the age to come. He will rule forever. Now, in verse 22, he's actually quoting from Psalm 8, 6. I'm going to read Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which reads, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. All right, now that kind of brings us to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So in Psalm 8, in Genesis 1, God is speaking about man. He says man has been given dominion. But Paul applies this in Ephesians 1 to Jesus. Right, one more passage, Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. The author here also quotes Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Again, the passage we just read, I'm going to skip down. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, it is in subjection, but we don't see it yet. 
But we see him a little low, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. All right, let's, let's kind of tie this back in. God initially gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. Adam sinned, and they were unable to fulfill this intended role. So therefore, Jesus had to come as the last Adam to accomplish what the first Adam could not. All right, back to Ephesians, except this time we're going to jump ahead a little bit to chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay? What God did for Christ in raising him from the dead, he has done for us as well. We were dead, and now we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We are so connected to Christ, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His resurrection, our resurrection. His victory, His dominion, His position, they are all ours in Him. When it says we are seated in in the heavenly places, this is present tense. We now have the status of the Son. So we eagerly anticipate what verse 7 says, in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable greatness of the riches of His grace toward us. Moving on to verse 22, it says, He put all things under His feet, gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. All right, there's a lot here. I'll sum it up this way. God has given Jesus authority over everything. Then He gave Jesus to us, to the church. And now we are His body, we are permanently and directly connected to Him. We share in His authority and rule, and we will take our place that Adam was intended, that place of dominion that God intended from the beginning, we have that with Christ. In verse 23, it says, we see the church is the fullness of Him. Now, the idea here of fullness seems to be completeness. There's a sense where the church completes Him. Now, it's not that Jesus is lacking in any way, but He gives us the privilege that the church is the extension of His rule, of His authority over all the world. Just two verses I want to refer to in Revelation. Revelation 2.26, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over all nations. Then Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit, on my, sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The power which raised Christ from the dead and gave him authority over everything is toward us who believe, according to verse 19. Now this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, it doesn't have a lot of personal details like some of his letters. We don't necessarily know the occasion or what they were dealing with. But he does give us a couple of clues. Uh, In Ephesians 3.13, he says, I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Then in chapter 6, 
He says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. Okay, Paul was concerned that they were losing heart, that they needed some encouragement. It seems that Paul's imprisonment and persecution caused them to be discouraged. Right? Maybe they're wondering, what's going on? Right? If God is sovereign, why is Paul in prison? Why does it seem like we're not winning here? So how does Paul encourage them? He doesn't pray for his circumstances to change. Right? In fact, he asks them to pray while he's in prison. He doesn't pray, please pray that I can get out of prison. He says, pray that I would be able to boldly proclaim the gospel in my chains. And so he prays this prayer that we looked at this morning for them, that they would know God better. They would have eyes to see the immeasurable greatness of God's kindness to them. They would be strengthened knowing they are part of God's eternal plan from the foundation of the world. And they will rule and reign with him. So do you ever wonder, if God is so powerful, why do I feel so weak? Why isn't the church more effective? Why does it seem like the world is in chaos? What we need are eyes to see. That we pray for one another that the Spirit of God will reveal the riches of God's grace that we have through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious riches we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be changed by what we have heard, that we would be more like your Son, that Father, we would call upon you in prayer because we need you, we cannot accomplish this on our own. So, Father, we pray that you would receive all the honor and glory. We thank you for the power that we have in Jesus Christ. May it be to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.